0: everybody all over the continental United States. We got members in Mexico City. I mean, it's really something that you can learn this trade and you can go anywhere in the world. And instead of going to college or even just kind of humdrumming through tech school, not really sure what you're going to do, you can come to work at a place like Sam Service if you like Picasso's and we'll teach you how to do it. And I'm going to pay you pretty decent money to learn. And once you get it and once you get good at it, you know, which will probably take you two or three years, You've probably made close to $100,000 by then, you know, not guaranteeing that, but all depending on your ability to develop quickly. And, you know, so over three years, you want to make 100 grand or over four years, you want to spend 100 grand and not know where the heck you're going to go to work at. And also, you can come and learn the trade with me. I'm so passionate about it. I was like, Dad, dadgummit, just come learn, help me, be a part of it if you fit my culture. And then if you get married to a girl and she wants to move to New Mexico, I can make two phone calls for you. You can have a job in New Mexico, bro. It ain't no skin off my back. I just want to see everybody win. And the more people that are winning and the more people that myself and Sam's helping win, the better off everybody's going to be. Welcome to the Skill Stadium, a podcast for the skilled trades, where you can learn about the opportunities and benefits of working in the skilled trades from business owners, hiring managers, and the hardworking, talented professionals. And now, your host, Keith Williams.
1: Welcome to the Skill Stadium Podcast, episode 117. I'm your host, Keith Williams. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is about careers in HVAC industry and how to become successful in that industry. One of the things that I think is gonna be of real value for this particular podcast is that you're gonna hear from someone who found success making a transition from another industry. And this is an individual who had some struggles and still was able to rise to a high level in leadership in that industry. I also feel there is great value in hearing from people who have the power to hire you because there's nobody who can give you better advice to getting in an industry and being successful than people who are working in it. So without further ado, I want to introduce today's guest. Today's guest is from South Georgia. He is a Falcons and Braves fan and Georgia Bulldogs fans, and you know how those dogs are doing undefeated. <laughs> and so my guest, he started his career in banking as a teller and worked his way up to a loan writer. And with the downturn in the real estate market, he lost his job. He fell on some tough times and really struggled. But today he is the president of Sam's Service in Albany, New York. Please welcome Nick Cribb to the Skill Stadium podcast. Nick, how are you this morning?
0: Hey, doing really good, Keith. Thanks. I'm flattered for you to have me
1: on. Oh, my pleasure, Nick. I had the pleasure of listening to you on another podcast. And, you know, I heard your story and it really moved me. And I feel like there's not a testimony without a test. And I know that you've been tested and you're a man of faith. And so I really wanted you to share your story. Let's kind of start there in terms of how you got to where you are now, because a lot of people see the title, but they don't understand the journey and the process. And I think that's important for people to know.
0: Yeah, man. So um grateful to be from born and raised down here in South Georgia. Where I was raised at is actually not very far from where I sit right now. It's funny how that tends to work out in life. I've sure. uh, had a lot of travels and been a lot of places, done a lot of things. But as I do my job every day, it's not very far from where I started, which is a good reminder. It's humbling and it makes me grateful to be where I am. But there was a time where not far from here, I was just a young kid growing up at, below the poverty line. And, you know, My parents were, I was the second child uh, to my parents and they were 15 and 16 years old. So, you know, had some generational things that were happening there. Kids having kids. I want to be sure to honor my mother and father. I love them both dearly. And, you know, we kind of started behind the eight ball. Me and my sister did when we were born and, you know, had a pretty tough upbringing. And I found myself uh, part of a community that didn't look like me but that embraced me and made me feel a a part of a very large family. And I learned at a very young age that it didn't matter what your varying beliefs were, or your varying perspectives, or even your varying physical attributes are. People are people, and good people are good people, and real recognizes real. And if you're just the most honest version of yourself, you'll be accepted, and and you'll excel. And from there, I went to You know, went to high school and became very active in sports, became a basketball player. And at that time, that's the first identity that I ever had, Keith. It was the first time that I ever, for once in my life, I was like, I know who I am. I'm I'm the white dude at the black school that plays basketball. That's my calling card. That's who I am. And I leaned into it and I was and I was grateful for it. It was fantastic. And I did well and enjoyed it. And then next thing you know, I graduated from high school. And I was from a a social circle and a family circle that, that nobody was ever talking about what's next. It was never, hey, you need to go to trade school. It was never, you need to go to college. It was never, you need to join the military. It was like, hey, we got a game Friday. What are you doing Saturday? And then high school was over, right? And didn't have basketball anymore. My identity kind of was failing me. I was not talented enough to go get a scholarship to play in any capacity in college. In order to have an ability to go overseas and play professionally, right? So I was like, sure. okay, this dream's over. But I had a buddy of mine that was like, Hey man, you should come up here to this local bank that he was working at. And he said, Uh, they're hiring, they're looking for another teller. That's what I do. He's like, I think I can get you a job. So I go up there and interview at this bank and immediately hit it off with the branch manager, was hired on as a teller. And, you know, over the next eight years, I just was able to really step into this next identity that I had which was Nick Crib, the banker. And I went from teller to head teller, went from head teller to customer service rep, went from customer service rep to loan processor, loan processor to assistant branch manager, to branch manager, to consumer lender, to, you know, writing home equity lines of credit. And then next thing you know, I was a, what they call a, Forgive me. I'm drawing a blank right now. I have had the flu for three days, so I'm trying to get out of this foggy No problem. Break I understand. Take your time. Um, basically, like an apprentice vice president, they were basically pouring into me to become a commercial lender. And everything was going really well. I was enjoying it. I was wrapping my head around it. A big part of banking, I would say 95% of banking is customer service and relationship building. I mean, it's not real hard to sell money. You know what I mean? It's pretty simple. (laughs) The math works or the math doesn't. But people like to do business with bankers because they like them. And people like to do business with bankers because they're kind. And I figured that out very quickly. And but then next thing you know, I, I just proposed to my wife. We had just bought a home. And then my daughter, my oldest daughter, Bailey, who's 14 years old, who just made starting varsity for her uh, basketball so, team as a freshman, by the way. She's a little baller like her daddy. And can so she beat you? She Hold on, just been you. Can born. she beat
1: you now? Sorry I started to jump in. Can she beat you? You know I got to ask you that. <laughs>
0: Man, she—I tell you what—if I put her in the paint, there ain't much she can do with me right now. She's still smaller than me, but I don't want to see her on the shooting contest. Man, she can, <laughs> she can go no. toe to toe, lighten it up sometimes. Tell her she just—if she keeps that elbow in, it's, she's hard to beat. So there you
1: go, there you go. You got to be a shooter when you make the team as a freshman. I figured that. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. You got to be a shooter. And you got to play defense, and she does both pretty well. So
1: yes. But sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you there.
0: No, we can talk about Bailey all day long. I'm so glad yeah, I don't her right now. So, but um. So So she was just born, right? So I got a fixing to get married little. Well, actually, I had just been married, just bought a home, got a little baby at home. Yes. Show up to work. And the writing's been on the wall for a while with the 2007 economic downturn, the unraveling of the mortgage crisis in America. I remember getting the paper on my desk at the bank one day, which was just like gloom and doom, almost like, hey, the depression's coming. And I was called into a a meeting that that Friday to end out the week. And the, the bank president came walking in and he was he he was just crying his eyes out before he he could ever even say a word. And he said, Nick, if it was up to me, you know, I'd I'd keep you forever. I really do feel like you're going to do great things. He's like, but we're cutting costs. We got to cut back. We don't even know if the bank's going to make it. And so they laid me off. And so I went home and I'm taking care of a little baby, which I wasn't real good at. I wasn't scared of it, but I wasn't real good at it. You know, it was very intimidating as a 24, 25 year old. And my wife's going to work, working the night shift at the bank. She was a NICU nurse. So she's leaving, working the night shift. I'm taking care of the baby all day long. And that's the second time that I lost the identity that I had formed for myself. But this time it was different. This time I, it, it was okay. It wasn't the end of an era. It was dang, Nick, you failed. You didn't achieve the success you needed to. You weren't good enough for them to come up with a reason to keep you. And then on top of that, for about six or eight months, I couldn't find a job. Sure. That's tough know, it was really, t- I mean, the, the I MVP, if you remember, it was awful. And so I finally, I finally got one and it was at uh, a uniform and linen company and it was a decent job. I mean, it was, it was something that I should have been grateful for, but my pride had had me attached to this thing that I probably should be doing something of more esteem than something like sure. that. I didn't, I didn't have the humility and gratitude needed to be grateful in that moment. And it, within that social group that I was now a part of, a lot of people used pain pills. Yes. And I was introduced to a pain pill while I was there on a truck route one day. And I remember taking that pill in the way that that it kind of just laid over me like a warm blanket. And I remember just being like, Man, I'm back. This is I feel like I felt when I was a ball player again. And I and I feel like I felt when I was excelling through the banking industry. It gave me this feeling of success, like of elatement. And and it was a lie. You know what I mean? It wasn't it was not true. It was this fake substance that was making me think that I was winning again. When in reality, I was already winning before I took the the pain pill. I just, I didn't realize that I should have just been grateful for it. Right. But that turned into a, about a really rough five year stretch of awful decision-making and drug addiction to opiates. And I finally found myself in a position to where my wife was like, if you don't get help, you know, you're not going to be able to be around Bailey. I can't have you in this house. Her motherly instincts take over, right? And she's like, listen, dude, if that's what you want to do with your life, you can't. She's not going to be a part of it. And um Man, that'll I mean, don't
1: motivate so, you. That'll change you.
0: It sure will. You know, yeah. I mean, sometimes ultimatums can be they can be crushing. But sometimes ultimatums for people that you trust and people that you love can be of a pivot moment. You know, it's like, OK, I trust this woman. Yeah. She does not. She wants what's best for me. She wants me to be a daddy and a husband. Yes. And I mean, she, she likes spending time with me, you know, but she's also saying I'm willing to let all that go. if I'm not going to watch you burn your whole life down and go fuss in the flames along the way.
1: Yeah, that probably was very pivotal. I'd imagine that 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 must have shook you up like nothing could.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, it was, you know, I went from this whole history in my life of, of being able to overcome and find ways to be successful and honestly be fulfilled through some counterintuitive ways. And, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm feeling like, okay, I'm a failure again. This is awful. I've screwed it up, but this time was different. I had nobody to victimize you know this time other than you know what I had done to myself. I had to take accountability for the bad mistakes that I had made for whatever reason, and went and got cleaned up. I went to a rehabilitation facility. Mm-hmm. And it is there where I found my belief system that I hold near and dear to now, which is, you know, for those who are listening, is through the good news of Jesus Christ and who he says I am through the Gospels and I'm trying to shove that down anybody's throat. But I'd be remiss not to say that's what I believe. And I'm grateful for that.
1: No, but you—you, you, it's your story. You tell it. Don't back away from that, please. Yeah.
0: And, and no way am I ashamed. I, j- I really do try to be a good steward of that, though, because I am in a lot of positions of, of authority and influence. And there's power in that name. And I want I want it to be used when he wants it to. I don't I don't want to be a, you know, a, a evangelical, making people feel some type of way. But at the same time, my oh, truth, yeah. is my truth. And I am not ashamed. Yes, of I agree. Again. So the principles that I learned through this new change in my belief system were if I'm going to be successful in life, which success walking out of rehab was not take another pain pill today, that I'm going to have to take one step of gratitude and the next step of humility and then another step of gratitude and then another step of humility. And I stepped on those two legs for a long time and uh, went to work at my church right out of, uh, out of rehab. It was just a safe place for me. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about anything other than, hey, man, I'm grateful that I'm not using drugs today, but I'm humble sure. enough to admit if I get in the wrong circles, I'm going to screw this up.
1: How did and church help you? How did being involved in the church help you in terms of your recovery and getting back on track?
0: So the I would say two ways. One way was they spoke truth to me Every day. And truth and love, right? Like truth and love. They part they couple that together very well. I mean, pastors, I mean, that's what they do, right? I mean, they're they're there to encourage you, to motivate you, and to basically say, hey, you know, you are a piece of crap, but you're not a piece of crap anymore because you're viewed like God's viewed. And that means you are victorious and you are freed, you are redeemed, you are justified, and you need to walk in that new identity. It's not about what you did. It's, it's about who God says you are now. And I needed that daily encouragement for a long time. But then they had they were remodeling this building. They had just bought this building for like a million dollars. And they were trying to get the whole thing remodeled. And I noticed really quickly that all the vendors that they were dealing with were taking advantage of these good people. You know, pastors are very kind. And so are the clergy in general and all the leaders in this church where uh, they struggled a little bit with accountability because they didn't want to rub anybody the wrong way. Sure. And I was like, hey, you boys from the hood. I'm from the bottom. I've been going through some stuff anyway. <laughs> I would love an opportunity to straighten these juckers out for you. If yeah. you'll let me take over the reins of this project, I'll get it done for you. So yes. I grabbed the bull by the horns. I, I got everybody lined up and got them. I said, hey, you ain't dealing with the pastors no more. You don't <laughs> have to deal with Nick Crib now. We're going to be up and running by Easter Sunday. And, uh, and we achieved that goal. But one of the uh, advisory members of the church his names Kurt Scott, mm-hmm. and we were wrapping up with this whole project. And it was kind of like, hey, I got to figure out what's next. Sure. And he said, Hey, I own this company. It's called SAM Service, S A M. And that acronym is Scott Alligood and Moorhead. Those are the three families that own that own SAM. And he said, Listen, I've got this dispatcher. I'm about to fire him. He's awful. He's like, and I just want to go ahead and offer you the position. He says ten bucks an hour. You know, we got about five employees. But what we've found is that in the commercial cooking equipment, refrigeration and HVAC space, there's nobody that takes it seriously. It's a bunch of underhanded, sly, corner cutting. Nobody's being honest. We just feel like that if we can show up and do quality, excellent work, and we're clear and we're candid and we're honest, that we can take over Georgia. And I was like, okay, cool, I'm in. So go to work, start working at SAM service, and immediately saw from the, I think we had four technicians, um, they were kind of dictating the flow of what work was going to get done every day. And I wasn't in a position to where I could squeeze them. So I, so I call a meeting and I'm like, hey, if you, if you want me to get the most I can out of these guys, you got to let them know they're reporting to me. Because right now I feel like I'm dispatching, but I'm telling them, hey, I got these six calls you can run today. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to run that one. And then I got to go to a dentist appointment and then I'll run this other (laughs) one for you. And I'm catching a movie with my wife tonight. And I'm not saying they're they're crappy people. I just, you know, if you don't hold people accountable, they're not typically they're not going to be accountable. But one thing I did learn is that accountable people don't mind being held accountable. And so we put this team together. We started growing the company and, you know, went from four techs, went to eight techs. You know, next thing you know, we're at 10, 12 techs. Uh, we upgrade our building. We open up a specialty projects division. You know, all this stuff's going by. We're rocking along and they call a big meeting one day and they're like, listen, Nick, we got to get our stuff together. And if we do, we need to have a, what we call an accountability chart, what other organizations call kind of like a hierarchy. And, you know, through some discussion with our leadership team, they decided to name me as the president of Service and i mean i'm completely blown away in this moment and i'm like you know i remember going home and telling my wife i was like uh i was like you're not gonna believe this but they just named me president of sam today and she's like oh my god babe that's great i'm so proud of you and i'm like i don't i don't know she's like well, why not and i was like well i thought all these guys were smart and talented but I'm starting to think they're a bunch of dumbasses. She says, Nick, you got to quit doing that. You got to quit downplaying yourself. She's like, You're doing humility a little bit too extra these days. I'd rather do it too much than let pride. So, then through that, you know, through just our leadership team leaning into each other's strengths and us really leaning into our core values as an organization, you know, as we sit here today, we've got 60 employees, about 35 of those are technicians. We're in Atlanta. We're in Macon. We're in Albany. We're all over North Florida. And we do nationwide projects. And it's a really, really cool thing. Through that involvement, I got involved with CFESA, my trade organization, Commercial Food Equipment Service Association. Talk
1: about why that's important. Tell people why that's important, because I think it's important for people to understand these organizations outside of work can help advance your career and build networks and relationships.
0: Yeah, but Sam service would not be what it is today without CFESA. So there's networking, right? In a very obvious, like just like banking, right? People want to do business with people that they like and people that are kind to them. So I know that I can represent my organization in other circles via a trade association or other ones. And all I got to do is be an honest, good, kind human being. And then I earn favor and then people look for ways to do business with me. And then all I have to do is not suck. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we like to think we're really good at what we do. So if I can just be a representative and run in these circles, I know that I'm going to be able to gain influence and favor with people by not complicating it and just being kind. And so the networking has been huge. We've had extraordinary opportunities that come from that. But also, I don't know what I don't know. And there's a lot of other people in these associations that um I'll give you an example. Roger Kaufman is in Baltimore, Maryland, and he's like a second generation owner of his company. He's just giving it away to his daughter, who's now third generation. And I mean, this company's been piping since like the 1920s or 1930s, Keith. There's stuff that this man knows that I'm that would cost me a whole lot to figure out. But by just befriending him and saying, hey, Roger, I'm sure you know a whole lot more than me. I'd love to have a meeting and to not talk at all and just listen. I might have a couple questions, but I got no problem with you just pontificating and running off at the mouth and saying, here's what you don't need to do. I want to write those things down. And him and Gary Potvin and David Hahn and, you know, Bruce Hodge, all these men that I met, just they just freely pour you this information. I mean, it was so expensive for them to learn. And they're just yearning for the next generation to just ask them how. Hey, what should I do and what should I not do? Yes, And
1: how has that helped you to make the transition? Because I got to believe that was not an easy transition to go from you were a dispatcher to now the president of the company. What do you think helped you the most in making that transition?
0: Yeah, so I couldn't. So my leadership team helped me a whole lot with that because very early on, I was very transparent, open and honest about how emotional that I can be. So I'm a performer. I can you can put a microphone in my hand and put me in front of a thousand people and I'm going to figure out a way to either make them laugh or clap. It's what I do. <laughs> like you're going to yeah. you, you give me a, a sheet of goals and say, Nick, I need you to do this. I'm going to figure out a way to do it so I can achieve and I can perform. But that is very different from leading. So what I had to learn is that my natural style to attack issues and to attack goals is not normal. So when I'm leading people, I have to figure out in a very empathetic way how to communicate to them to motivate them. To, in some, to just get 80% of the way there with their energy and their skill set of how God's just naturally gifted me. And because if not, I just wear people out or I just, I mean, I'll run smack into a wall and just you know piss people off because just, people ain't on my level. And to be a good leader you know, you have to be able to produce other leaders. And there was a time at SAM service where I was just a dispatcher and I just had to be told what to do. And I had to say, yes, sir, no, sir. I had very clear lines in my uh, authority and in my influence and, and I had to operate within that. So then as I was given more, I had to be a good steward of that and say, okay, as I lead other people, I better create very, very clear lines of accountability and structure for them too. And you heard me say earlier, accountable people don't mind being held accountable I don't think there's anything wrong with if there's a badass in your organization that's kind of a little bit off par for you to just call the meeting and say, hey, dude, I care about you. I love you. You're really, really great at what you do, but I need your help. You're missing the mark right here. And I don't even know if you know, 90 percent of the time they have no clue. They just needed to be told. and They go, oh, dang, dang, dude, I didn't I didn't even realize that. Thanks for bringing it up. I'll fix it. The power
1: of candor and communication.
0: Yeah, man. And just honesty, you know, honesty, just being yes. honest, just being the most honest version of yourself. And um, I find that people just, man, they thrive in it. They love it. And that's kind of what I've morphed my entire leadership style here as I've matured into more of a leader, which I'm working on every single day. At Sam's service was to just, you know, a little bit less more of Nick and a little bit more of the fundamentals of what great leaders are and trying to be well read and, and trying to be stoic and measured and patient.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's it, like you said, it's a journey, you know, you're constantly trying to improve on it and that just doesn't happen overnight and the fact that you're conscious of it and you're working on it is tremendous because a lot of there are people who don't, you know. Right. They, they don't. They just they're I've always done it this way, I've always been this way, I'm not going to change and that that doesn't cut it anymore these days. Yeah, so
0: I had this beautiful gift of doing it my way that ended horribly. So it's a really easy thing for me to say, well, dadgummit, this is my first thought. This is what I wrote down to do. I'm going to do it this way, come hell or high water. It's like, no, I've done that before and it didn't work out. <laughs> okay. but I try to be pretty nimble with my approach to things. And I do believe that my belief system dictates my Thought life. And whenever my thought life's off track, I just got to remind myself of my belief system. And if my thought life is healthy, then that means my feelings are going to be good, positive, encouraging, uplifting, and I can give that energy away. And if I feel good, I'm going to make pretty good decisions. I mean, I'm going to be quite assertive and I'm going to have buy-in when I make those decisions. And from that comes fruit. From that comes victory. So, I mean, it's a very practical line that you can draw from, this is who I believe that I am. This is the self-talk that I have. This is the way that it makes me feel. Here's the positive, encouraging, assertive decisions that I make from that, which in turn, just load up the barrel with fruit, not just for myself, but for other people under my charge.
1: Excellent. Talk about your company culture, because one of the things I keep hearing you say is that accountable people want to be held accountable. But first of all, I don't think everybody's like that. I agree with you on that, Mm -hmm. but I don't think every person out there has that mindset. So how do you find people? Because obviously you're getting people in your organization who have that mindset. Everybody's not like that in the world, as I'm sure you're aware. How do you find and attract people that fit into your culture? Because your culture, accountability, I know is part of your culture. I'm just listening to you. But how do you find those people and how do you embrace that culture in your organization so people know, hey, this this is how we operate?
0: got you so I would say the first thing you got to do is define culture culture is a, a collective decision made on beliefs and approach to a way that you live life within a group of people right so that's how there's different cultures in Europe and there's different cultures in America it's because there's different groups of people there that have different things that they've decided upon to be true. So within Sam's service, our core values tell us what our culture are. And I and I won't go through all five of them right now, but I'll explain culture to you at Sam's Service this way. If me and you were to walk into a museum together, Keith, and we're walking side by side, right? And we walk over and we look at a Picasso. I'm a big Picasso fan and I go, man that freaking Picasso. Man, Keith, I could, scare, I could stare at this thing for hours. It's just beautiful. And you go, eh, it's not really my thing. I'm like, really? You don't like that? And you're like, no, nah, I mean, it's cool, but it's not really my thing. And I'm like, dang, okay. But then we walk over to a Monet and you're awestruck, right? You're like, man, this Monet, like the way he works in the shadows and just the, he's using every color on the spectrum, man, this is just beautiful. And I go, eh, I really like the Picasso more. That's, Basically the same thing with organizations. It does not mean that you're a terrible person because you don't like a Picasso. I'm not a terrible person because I don't like a Monet. So as I'm trying to find people to fit in Sam's service, I just need to make sure they're fans of Picasso. Because part of liking Picasso is being held accountable. And if you don't like being held accountable, that's fine. There's plenty of other organizations out there that might be a better fit for your palette. But here at Sam's service, we know who we are. We know what our culture is. We know what we're going to demand and either you fit or you don't. And when you don't fit, it's not, man, you stink. You suck. You got to get out of here. It's just, Hey, we'll take you through an assessment of the core values. We'll talk about who we say we are, who we believe we are. And we can show in a very practical way how they don't align with that. And then say, Hey man, we think God's calling you somewhere else, bro. Like don't try to Definitely. grin and bear it here. Go find your Monet. And yeah. That's, that's kind of the sure. way we cultivate that.
1: Yeah. I think it's a question of patterns. You know, my son played uh, travel baseball and the, when they started getting to an older age, 13 and kids were pitching, I started seeing a profile. Kids were over six feet, certain height and weight. And there were some parents were like, their kids were smaller, didn't fit that profile. And they're upset that their kids were getting pushed back as they were getting older. And I said, well, look at the patterns. Even if you look at the pros, right? I'm not saying that they're not exceptions, but you've got to study patterns. Patterns will tell you something. If they've had success with like big kids pitching, right? The first baseman is usually a bigger kid. Second baseman is a little bit smaller, more agile. You got to go get in where you fit in. So if your kid... Maybe they go through a growth spurt later on. Maybe they can explore back in, in pitching. But at the end of the day, this is what has worked for these sports teams. It's no different in a company. You know, like here's a pattern that we've seen and people who have been successful in our company. You don't kind of meet that pattern. And you know, you've hired enough people mm-hmm. that you're going to know fairly quickly. Your people are going to know too if you bring them in or her in. So um, I'm a big fan of getting in where you fit in. Yeah. Just like, you know. Absolutely. And so I, I totally understand what you're saying. And like I said, people just have to, if they listen and pay attention, like I said, I was just listening to you and I knew right away, accountability, accountability, accountability. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand. Yeah. And those are the things that people miss. They don't pay attention to. And then they get in a, an organization where they're not necessarily maybe they get in, but they interview and they're like, wow, this is just not the place for me. And it's, it's having that self-awareness. Yeah. Also, I know you do a lot of work with schools because we have a skills gap and we need to get more young people in the skill trades. Talk to me about how you're because I I think that's smart that you guys are partnering because I know you're working with schools. And I think that's so important to get that pipeline because we know that. There are a lot of older people in your profession, and we need more youth. Talk to me about what you're doing and how you're going to get more young people into your profession.
0: Yeah, so we know that the workforce as it sits, there aren't going to be guys my age, not many, that are going to be coming to work at Sam's service, you know, with already knowing how to cook and equipment, refrigeration, and HVAC. It's just not going to happen. There's definitely not going to be any of them my dad's age, you know, like 50, 60 years old. They're all are man, they're on the tail end of it. They're getting ready to land the plane. If you get one of those, you're lucky. But honestly, even if you get one of those, they're so adverse to the extraordinary change that happens every day in this world. It's just a tough thing for them to do. So we're placing ourselves in front of high schoolers and trade schools to say, hey, here's a really good opportunity for you that once you kind of break it down, it, it opens their eyes up to a really big world. And that world is food. So you see all these restaurants, you hear about all these delivery drivers doing the Grubhub thing. You hear, you know, Amazon's looking to do the little marts where you can order the groceries and get them delivered to your house the same day. Like You hear this whole world that is food. And sometimes a lot of our general public doesn't realize there's things that have to keep that cold or there's things that has to get that hot. And that is industry wide. And that's where Sam's service fits in. Whether you want to go to Burger King and get a Whopper. They can't do that without Sam's service if that grill's not working. Or if you want to just be at home and order some milk, you're going to get spoiled milk if I don't keep their refrigeration running. And I was like, I said, I challenged them, like, look at it. It's everywhere. There is zero chance that you're going to come here and not have work to do. We cull as much as we can with our customers that we receive because everybody needs us to do stuff all the time. So to learn this skill set, Is something that can take you anywhere in the world through the circles that I run in at Sophessa. We've got a guy MCT, and he's got a company in Sweden. He's got one in the Netherlands. He's in Dubai. You know, of course, we got everybody all over the continental United States. We got members in Mexico City. I mean, it's really something that you can learn this trade, and you can go anywhere in the world. And instead of going to college or even just kind of humdrumming through tech school, not really sure what you're going to do. You can come to work at a place like Sam service if you like Picasso's and we'll, <laughs> teach, you, and we'll teach you how to do it. And I'm going to pay you pretty decent money to learn. And and once you get it and once you get good at it, you know, which will probably take you two or three years, you've probably made close to $100,000 by then. You know, not guaranteeing that, but all depending on your abilities to develop quickly. And, you know, so over three years, you want to make 100 grand or over four years, you want to spend 100 grand and not know where the heck you're going to go to work at. And also, you can come and learn the trade with me. I'm so passionate about it. I was like, dadgummit, just come learn, help me be a part of it. If you fit my culture. And then if you get married to a girl and she wants to move to New Mexico, I can make two phone calls for you. You can have a job in New Mexico, bro. It ain't no skin off my back. I just want to see everybody win. And yeah, the more people it. that are winning and the more people that myself and Sam's helping win, the better off everybody's going to be.
1: Nick, got a quick question for you that you mentioned that. Are you open to letting a young person come and shadow your company? So you got 18 year old, they are not sure if they want to do it. Could they call or reach out to your company and say, hey, we want to spend a day just learning the trade and figure out if this is what we want to do. Don't mean to put you on the spot, but is that something you think you'd be open to doing?
0: A hundred percent. If somebody were to reach out in regards to this podcast and say, hey, I'm interested. I was moved by your story or whatever the heck it was. But, like, or hey, man, I just need to make some money. You said $100,000 in three years. What's that look like? Hey, <laughs> like, we can talk about it. If you're in Georgia, we need your help. I mean, we want to have 20 branches by 2032. That's our 10-year target. We cannot have 20 branches without a whole lot of winners. I need good people. And a lot of those winners, are going. we're going to have to train them on how to win here at Sam Service. Some of them are going to need to be trained how to win at billing. Some of them need going to learn how to be trained how to win at being a technician, being a market operator, being a salesman, being a project manager. I don't know what it is. I just know i got a ton of opportunity that I have to figure out to get us to love that it. goal.
1: I love it. And I, I want to just emphasize something. Companies are not doing that anymore. Companies don't pay for training and pay you while you're training. So this is very unique. This is a unique opportunity. You have the president of the company putting an offer out there. I take him at a his word. I believe him. And so if you're listening and you're a young person, i mean, 18, you can walk in the door and have an opportunity. Am I can I say that, Nick? Is that okay? Yeah.
0: So at 18, I won't be able to put you in a van. You got to be 21 to drive a vehicle. But at 18, if you've got some gumption and you've got an ability to get to work and meet my guy to pick you up, a hundred percent, I dare you to call. I dare you to let us talk about
1: it. Challenges there. Challenges there, folks. Listen, Nick, I want to ask you about, we're going to wrap up here. I want to ask you about, first of all, I enjoy this conversation. You and I can talk for hours and hours I want to make sure I respect your time. We'll probably have to have a second version of the podcast, you and I, just because there's so much more I want to talk about that it just, Nick, tell me about, because you're a family man, I'm a family man, you're a man of faith. What does success look like for you? Like what's next for you? Because you've risen to a level of president of a company and I don't believe you're somebody who just sits on Mm -mm. title, you know. I don't see that in you. I see bigger things. And that's always challenging when you're at the level that you're at. What does success look like for you, whether it's work, family? Because I incorporate all that because I know that it's not just work for you, you know, as a family man. Talk to me about what success looks like for you.
0: So success for me, I can define it two ways. The first way is professional and personal. uh, And the second is completely personal. The first one is just adding value. I want to add value to everything that it is that I am attached to for the rest of my life. So I was just elected as president of CFESA, right? Big deal. I mean, it's it's an election. You have to be elected by these members. And they elected me to be the president. And I don't plan on just saying, got it. Cool. Thanks. Like, no, I've got to add value to this association. And I'm willing to bust my butt to do it. Right now at Sam's Service, we're Looking to grow the business every single day, quarter by quarter, year by year. I want to add the most value I can at an $8 million a year company like we are right now. Next year, I want to figure out how I can add value to a $10 to $12 million a year company. 2024, how do I add value to a $15 to $20 million a year company? And all the way up to how in the heck do I add value to a $100 million a year company? Because it's not about a title. It's about creating value for the people that work for me for the people that are in my charge, but also the people that spend their money with me. And it's a very fulfilling thing for me too, because just like when I used to be on the basketball court back in the day, you know, of course, whenever the game was over, I wanted to see the stat sheet, right? How many points, rebounds, assists did I have, right? But that's not the first thing I looked at. Very first thing I did was look up, say, did we win the damn game? Yes. And I'm walking over to my teammates that played really well. And I'm like, man, great look back there in the fourth quarter. I mean, you really took over. And, you know, Jawan, I really appreciate you looking out for me and giving me that word at halftime. I was, you know, I was in my own head and you, you freed me up. Those are the conversations I'm having on the way to the stat sheet. And mm-hmm. I want to, I want to be that same type of person in business. And then at home, right? Like, I want to know how to add the most value to a 38-year-old beautiful woman who's stewarding two toddlers at the moment and one teenager. And I've got to be a different type of person for her right now to add value than I'm going to have to be in five years when we got a 19-year-old that's out of school and we've got two kids who are in elementary probably starting to get involved in sports. And but I have to have a value add approach to it. And then, of course, to my kids. Right. And that brings me to my to my second thing of what success looks like. If one day, you know, I'm completely bald. I'm not just balding, but it's all gone. And my kids are are out on their own and they've got their own families and somebody were to ask them who their hero was. And and if in some way, shape or form, they could say, my daddy, then buddy, that would have been a successful life that I live. Because that means that I loved them well, that I earned their trust. Even after my authority was gone, my influence remained. Even when I didn't have the authority to say, don't buy that house, they still call me and say, hey, dad, should I buy this house? And they trust the counsel that I'm going to give them. I really think that that would be a very successful life.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you something. We have to be so careful with what we do and act as fathers because as our kids get older, they're watching and we've got to admit where we fell short so our kids don't make those same mistakes. Tell you a quick story. My son, he plays basketball. He's a freshman on his varsity team and there was a kid on the team that kind of ices him out because he's a freshman, you won't pass him the ball. And, you know, there was a play where he coughed up the ball and my son went and got it and scored. And I feel like, I, so I spoke negatively of that kid. I said, oh man, this guy's always coughing up the ball. He never passes it. And my wife looked at me and said, that's his teammate because you tell him not to. So when my son dogs teams that they play, I tell him you can't talk about people like that. But yet I just did that, right? So they're following our examples. Oh, they're yeah. listening They watch what we do, not what we say. So we have to be so conscious of living our truth. And I always say, if you post, here's a true litmus test. If you post something and your kids see it and they're embarrassed or they're not, or or your parents see it, like your mom sees it or your kid sees it and it's not representing you right, you shouldn't post it. So I do feel that that's something I feel like you get because you're talking about your kids looking up to you as their, as their hero. And that comes with how you live your life and the actions you take. And I truly believe that your kids should be very proud of you for everything you've accomplished and what you've gone through. Because like I said, there are lessons to be learned from your, your struggles. There's, no, you know, there's so many lessons to be learned by what you've gone through and what you've achieved. It shows that you're human. Right. You know, so uh, I like I said, I have a lot of respect for you. Uh, I wish you nothing but success. And we got to do this again.
0: (laughs) Hey, I ain't scared. Just holler at me. Yeah. All
1: right. Well, Nick, uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Please share how people can find you.
0: Okay, so um, I'm on LinkedIn. Nick Crib Sam Service, that's S-A-M. I'm also on Facebook, Nick Crib, Very Simple, and on Instagram, at The Crib Life. So feel free to follow and connect through any of those mediums if you're looking to get some work or if you just need some counsel or otherwise to be encouraged.
1: Excellent, Nick. Thank you so much for your time, and I wish you continued success and have a blessed day. You too, my man. Thanks. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to Skill Stadium. It would mean so much if you left a review on iTunes and told your family and friends about the podcast.